A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is the Progressive Britain History Project, part of the Progressive Britain Podcast. In each episode, we look at different aspects of the Labour Party's past with the aim of promoting a clearer understanding of its contested history, perhaps busting a few myths on the way, introducing some new ways of thinking, and making connections between Labour's history, its present, and future. I'm Laura Beers, Professor of History at American University in Washington, D.C., I'm here with my co-host, Stephen Fielding, Professor of Politics at the University of Nottingham. Hi, Steve. Hello. And Dr. Emma London, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Malmo in Sweden, who's going to talk to us today about one of my favorite topics, women in politics, and specifically the position of women within the Labour Party. Emma has a PhD in History and Politics from Birkbeck and is currently writing a social history of parliamentary gender quotas in Britain, Europe, and the South African ANC. Before academia, Emma worked as a journalist with the BBC and Condé Nast, and previously hosted her own podcast, so is used to the gig. Um, welcome, <laughs> Emma, and thank you for coming on our podcast today. Thank you for asking me. The current Conservative leadership contest between former Chancellor Rishi Sunak and Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has once again brought the topic of gender and politics to the fore of political debate. Truss is currently an odds-on favorite to win the election amongst the Tory party membership. And if she does emerge victorious at the end of the summer, that would make her the third woman to lead the Conservative Party and the third female Conservative Prime Minister. Both Tory supporters and political commentators across the political spectrum have made much of the fact that their party has elevated three women to the top post, while the Labour Party has yet to elect a woman leader. This isn't for lack of women running for the top position. Women have, of course, stood for the Labour leadership, including Yvette Cooper and Liz Kendall in 2015, and Lisa Nandy and Rebecca Long-Bailey in 2020, but have never secured the top post. So I thought that we could start off by asking, so what? What, if anything, does it signify that there's never been a woman Labour Party leader? The Labour Party has proportionally more women in elected office at all levels than the Tories, thanks in large part to their controversial policy of introducing all women shortlist in 1997. In fact, the parties had to suspend the use of all women shortlist at the parliamentary level on the grounds that the policy would discriminate against men, as their parliamentary Labour Party is now more than 50% female. The current shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, is the first woman to serve in that post and were Labour to form a government after the next general election 
might potentially be the first female chancellor. Labour was the first party to elect a woman to the cabinet. Margaret Bonfield as Minister of Labour in the 1929 government. And the second female cabinet minister, Ellen Wilkinson, about whom I've written a biography. I had to get that plug in there. (laughs) Um, Was also a member of the Labour Party. So what, if anything, does it matter that Labour has not yet had a woman leader? Emma? Well, I think it, I think it's a really interesting question, and it's quite it's a really big. <laughs> I've I've got so many unstructured thoughts on this, but it's a really big issue, and I think it's quite an embarrassment for Labour at the moment, and I think it's an embarrassment for the women of the Labour Party, and that that is a big problem. I mean, you you plugged um, your book, Laura, so I should probably say that I um, helped research Rachel Reeves' latest book. Uh, which is called Women of Westminster, and we were interviewing lots of lots of current and former MPs from all parties. Uh, but with that was during the time that Theresa May was Prime Minister, and a question that came up throughout with with whoever we were talking to, whatever party they belonged to, was the question of whether Labour was ever going to have a female prime minister or a female leader um and quite a few people asked rachel if she wanted to be it which was quite fun <laughs> she dodged that question very diplomatically every time in slightly different ways but i it, it's um i think the embarrassment is quite a, quite an important issue i mean i study political organizations from a social history angle so i'm interested in what makes people tick and what makes people do what they do the particular way in which you have have to operate if you're part of a political party who seeks power, um, the sort of women's organising behind the scenes to kind of gain access to and execute like power, um, and it's you know it's it's something that holds a lot of people back. And I think one of the things um, that we should talk about during this podcast is is like the personal cost of being the the person to put your head above the parapet and say no hang on I want to stand for leader I want to be the leader I'm I can do this um because that has also been quite controversial I mean one thing another thing that we should talk about maybe or mention at least is the fact that for Labour in particular being a, a socialist party or a social democratic party um they also have this constant ideological battle with um you know whether women get liberated by social democratic or socialist policy or whether they need something else before that happens steve do you want to come in well i've i've got lots of unstructured thoughts too about about this particular (laughs) issue because um i mean being on twitter and during the course of the conservative leadership campaign which is obviously still ongoing then that was something i mean conservatives were saying it um but also but a lot of people in the labor party were saying it and i and it's not a good look it is it is quite an embarrassment at at that top level but as you as you say you know laura i mean just over 50% of labor mp's are women and that's bound to get I mean, that's from 2019, right? So a lot of them must be in very safe seats. So that that percentage, possibly, certainly that number is going to increase. And that's twice the number that the Conservatives have. Um, and I'm I'm a member of, of the local Labour Party. And I know that for various, all, all, the, all positions, you know, delegate to the um, GMC, you know, all kinds of positions, there are certain percentages, you know, you've got to have at least half of women. Um, you've got to have at least one woman in, in a particular role. 
Um, and so there are lots of those things in place. And I just wonder, you know, it doesn't look good, but is anybody saying that there is a woman problem in the Labour Party that the Conservative Party either doesn't have or has somehow managed to just ignore and, you know, project these two, possibly three women into, into the leadership? Um, I don't know what, what Labour could do to make it much more likely, other than having an all-woman shortlist, maybe, for leader, which, of course, isn't going to happen. So, so it's kind of like it looks really bad. But in, but everything else seems to be. I mean, you, you know, I can I can be told. See, there's always problems. There will never be. It'll never be perfect. But but just by not having a leader, a woman as a leader, it looks bad. But is it bad? I mean, is it actually bad? If the party has got the policies which which Labour has, and of course they can always be improved. And I I looked at the um, not that this should then mean we can forget about it, but I looked. Um, at the latest figures for the, for the gender divide in in voting, and it's never been higher. I mean, late, you know, certainly amongst young women, thirteen young women, women under thirty five, that is, they vote Labour thirteen percent more than young men in that age group. So, and, and overall, Labour's lead is something like eight eight percent. So, um, if if it if, if it doesn't look good and it doesn't, and if it, it is bad and it and it is, it doesn't seem to put off um at least certain women voting for the party. But so so yeah, it looks bad, but I'm not quite sure what else the party has to do. I mean, it can't guarantee that the next leader is going to be a woman. I I personally I'd be happy if Rachel Reeves was the next leader, but I suspect she won't be, but for reasons totally different to her being a woman. Okay. So I'm gonna take the unstructured thoughts that both of you guys throw out and try to impose some structure on them in terms of some talking points we might pick up. Because I think there are a few different issues here. One is what, you know, Steve's comment about gendered support for political parties and how that does or doesn't map onto um, women in positions of leadership, right? And so Britain has had, since Thatcher was in power, you've started to see a reversal a narrowing first of the gender gap and then a reversal where women are more likely than men to support the Labour Party. And this is despite the fact that Thatcher was the first female prime minister and that the Tories have gone on to have now two and soon to be three likely women in the top position. Right. So is there a link between women in leadership positions and women's support for a political party? And if not, what does that mean? And that sort of leads into a second question right, about whether it actually advances women's interests to have women in leadership positions, or whether it's more important to have policies that, pers- you know, or have a government in power that pursues policies that help women. And again, this was a conversation that really heated up first when Thatcher was prime minister. But I think there are also questions about political culture, right? And Emma really underscored the discomfort that a lot of women felt about the fact that labor women felt that labor hadn't had a woman leader. I heard Emma Thornberry um, on the BBC a couple of weeks ago being quizzed on this, and clearly you could hear the discomfort in her voice and the defensiveness as well, as she talked about you know the number of women in in local council positions and sort of tried to um, to hedge about why a lack of a woman leader wasn't an issue. Um, but I do think this links into the question of quotas and all women shortlist, which Emma you've worked on, right? And whether in some sense. The fact that labor has pursued these all women shortlist has in some ways worked to its disadvantage because the conservatives can turn around and say, 
well, we look at women on their merits and we've promoted women to leadership positions because we see women, you know, not as women, but as qualified. And I've identified these qualified women who come to the top. Whereas labor is so inherently misogynistic that it needs to impose these quotas in order to promote women because otherwise women wouldn't be promoted. And the fact that in the last two leadership campaigns, you've seen two women versus one man, and in both, the man has secured more than 50% of the vote in the final round, arguably seems to to bolster that um, that Tory argument. So I guess that that relates to this question of political culture, right? And whether the culture of the Labour Party is inherently masculine and whether quotas have been brought in, in a sense, to try to counteract that. Um, and on the flip side, is the Conservative Party less inherently masculine? And if so, why? So Emma, because you're our guest, having thrown down those three very different kind of broad areas of discussion, I'll let you choose which we pick up the reins and run with first. Oh, difficult. Um... I think what maybe I should just start by saying that the quotas, I mean, they are, they were introduced because, um, well, particular in the, the Labour Party, the women who worked to introduce the, the uh, all women's shortlists, they very much used the fact that if, if um, women had swung to uh, to Labour in the 1992 election the way that men had, then then Neil Kinnock would have been the prime minister. Um, so that was that was very much a selling point that we need to look like we represent women. And I think for many parties who enforce quotas around the world, and this is like a, a transnational social democratic movement from 1986, specifically there's a Congress motion at the Socialist International. They, this can get incredibly geeky, um, <laughs> but there's you know it moves over the world um, in various parliamentary parties, um, and from that moment on women do get selected and are more visible and it does make a difference and you know the electorate the female electorate moves left at least in in Great Britain as a result but or maybe not as a result but at least contributing to the fact that that women started voting for Labour because they feel like you know Labour starts the more women enter the Labour Party and the parliamentary Labour Party the more they start talking about childcare for example which is you know something you definitely want to talk about if you want to win votes from women so I think there's you know there's there's um that the the reason the quotas exist is potentially also a reason why uh some of the work of the women in the Labour Party can feel as though it's enough because I mean really if you have a, a party leader of course it's a very important office but there's lots of people who contribute lots of policy and run various ministries if they're in power and you know various shadow positions when they're not in power and I think you know it, it is a problem the fact that they haven't had a, a female leader is a problem if it looks like a woman could never be elected because she is a woman and I think that might be why this sense of embarrassment comes out. I mean, everyone, I think, would like to have had a female leader back in the 80s and 90s. But, you know, I'm sat in Sweden today, Sweden, which has enforced gender quotas in all parliamentary parties. I think we have about seven or eight or maybe even nine parliamentary parties. All of them, bar the far right Sweden Democrats, enforce various kinds of gender quotas and it was only in the autumn of 2021 that Sweden got its first female prime minister so you know quotas in countries can kind of overshadow 
you know, the big positions. And I mean, that was an acute national embarrassment on behalf of Sweden, looking really like, you know, Norway had a female prime minister in the 80s. So, so I mean, I'd, um, I mean, Labour certainly historically has been um, a masculinist party. I mean, that's obviously been connected to the role of the trade unions and the ro- and the fact that, you know, the world of work was, at least at some level, certainly at the unionised level, um, predominantly male and and male in a certain way. You know, labouring unions, skilled, semi-skilled, you know, men that use their hands. I mean, that was that that's kind of a that's kind of an old stereotype and, and a stereotype that was true of the of, of the Labour Party that it did define its core business as increasing. You know, the the power the the uh, representation of trade unions that were predominantly male. Um, I mean, I did, I did a book. Not that I mean, I'm not, I'm not expecting anyone to buy it, so it doesn't really matter. It's no longer available. So, um, but I looked in the fifties and the sixties, and that was incredibly misogynistic. You know, you would get sort of people um, in mining constituencies where women would talk in labour meetings, and and the men would talk over them. They would sort of be amused at the very idea that here's a woman who's going to talk about politics in one of our meetings was sort of almost amusing. Um, so women had so many barriers to overcome, and they even had their own separate organisation that some people thought channeled them away from the centre of the Labour Party and, you know, pat them on the head, they can do their, their little discussions, but it had no influence um, on, on the National Executive Committee. Um, now, the reason why I don't think that that's the, the case now within the Labour Party is partly because the labour market has changed, the trade unions have changed, um, and so, you know, those those core unions, so they, they might have a rhetoric of uh, militancy, which maybe brings with it certain sort of tropes of, of sort of manliness, but nonetheless, you know, there's a significant number of their own members and now some trade union leaders and for quite some time as well have been women so i don't know if labor is now in inherently um masculinist in the in the way that the conservatives would be seen not to be they it definitely was and that was definitely a problem and and definitely the agency of of certain certain women and and certain men to actually challenge that has has transformed the party. I mean, as I say, I I'm a member of of a ward party. I go to our um, general management committee meetings, and I mean, it's it's in South Manchester, so it's all pretty you know university lecturers, but it's a mix of of classes. And I would I would I wonder whether that is inherently a masculinist organisation in in any sense. Um, so I think I don't I don't know that the problem is is the culture of the party now. At least in certain parties, maybe ironically in those parts of Britain where um, Labour lost those seats, maybe that, that maybe some of those Labour parties it may be more traditional in their in their outlook. But I think broadly speaking, if if that's I don't think that's the problem. I don't think that's a problem. But you know, so we'll Emma, I want to let you come back in on this issue, but I I would like Steve to come back to your. I'm in a South Manchester Labour Party and we don't see this kind of, you know, misogynistic political culture because I think that does raise questions about which direction Labour is moving in, right? And whether it is a more urban, maybe less misogynistic, um, more cosmopolitan direction or whether there is this kind of wistfulness to win back a red wall where the perception, perhaps wrongly, is that this more masculinist industrial culture is still predominant. 
And I'm not saying that that perception is accurate, but it might then impact the way that party members think about who should be leading the party and what direction it should be going in. Emma, you'd wanted to come in though um, on Steve. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I was thinking about is the whole question of or issue of respectability and who, you know, like the the this is maybe part my rambling thoughts at the beginning about um, how socialism plays a role in this. The fact that you know, for for several generations up until like the 70s or even beyond that, for many working class people, it was you know, considered a respectable thing to be able to afford to have a housewife, that your wife didn't go to work. And I mean, you know, even like socialist utopia, I mean, it's, it's not, but Sweden, that was, that was how the system was set up well into the mid 70s. It's actually one of the reasons why a lot of Swedish women went into politics to, you know, change change laws to enable them to work. But it, it's still, you know, it's, it's, it's a big core I don't think, I mean, that's not the case anymore. And I think if anything, all of these conversations about gender and and electability in the last 30 years that have gone through through the Labour Party, I think that has changed the tone. I think that, you know, misogyny is difficult to get away from. There's always going to be people who think women with small children should stay at home. And I think one thing we might want to look at is the people who have become female prime ministers of the UK. And, you know, how, you know, the age of their children, the kind of roles they have, Theresa May not having any children. Um, but I think, you know, that there's there's lots of ideas about women and suitability. And, you know, this this making women the laughing stock at local meetings is, you know, something that went on into the 80s and 90s. Women were there to make coffee or tea, um, to put up put up posters <laughs> uh, to do like the groundwork to support the men. And in the early welfare state, as you know, one of the things that um, Red Ellen was uh, railing against Laura, the fact that, you know, that, that women were just supposed to be the stay at home caretakers of house and family. Um, and, you know, for, for many women in politics, they had to make a choice whether they wanted to have families and then they had to stay out of high office politics um, or they went into high office politics and could not combine it with having families. I think Margaret Thatcher having a family is quite, you know, revolutionary, but her kids were old by the time she made it to 10 Downing Street. And she makes that point very explicitly, Margaret Thatcher, right? That she sort of, you know, that she was a mother to them when they were young and that she returned. It's somewhat disingenuous, right? Because her political ambitions predated her her motherhood, but she says, basically, I took a gap out of pursuing my political career to be a housewife. And as you say, these early female politicians were very much people who felt they had to make a choice. Bonfield never marries and has children. Wilkinson never marries and has children. Jenny Lee marries but doesn't have children, right? Barbara Castle's your um, kind of, you know, first real exception as a kind of heavy hitter, right? But um Yeah, there's there's quite a big schism between that generation and the generation that comes afterwards, sort of in the seventies, when they when when female MP starts having babies after they're elected, that's like a big problem. I think Lady Tweedsma um had I think she was a widow when she was elected, but she had young children and she used to just like hand them over to a respectable looking policeman when she went to vote. But she's a very, you know, a very unusual, but also very, you know, landed gentry from from Scotland somewhere. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a kind of different thing. And then you hear the stories of women like Helen Heyman, who had a child 
when she was elected in 1974, she gave birth. She then had to come in like six days later. Someone, apparently, she told us when we interviewed her, called the police on her when she'd left her baby and the nanny in the ladies' members' room because they're not allowed to be there without the main member. So, you know, there's, and that would have been a Labour Party member who would have, you know, and would like all of this, like a lot of tension because some people had to make a choice and some people tried to make it work. So, yeah, respectability, the role of women and what we perceive women as being capable of, how we enable women to do what they're capable of. Um, These are all questions that come up time and time again when you think about women in political leadership. And I think it's very interesting that it hasn't come up with trust, right? I mean, it was one of the things um, when May was running and, you know, she she was actually, it was used against her, right, that she wasn't a mother. Um, And... But no one has really talked about Tress's um, daughters or her family life. And maybe that is a sign of progress, right? I mean, in the same way that, well, Sunak's personal life for other reasons has been in the news, but not whether or not, you know, being a father could impact his, um, his abilities to execute his job as a prime minister. No. But um, uh, I think behind the scenes, I mean, in terms of the, the attacks that Penny Mordaunt received, uh, there were questions about Penny Penny Mordaunt's marital status, being single, because she was asked a question at least once on, nas- on the national news about it. So I suspect that the trust thing, because there's a whole a murder about her whole private life, to be perfectly frank, and that's she's being protected by press supporters. So that may be to do not necessarily with everyone's now really progressive about this, uh, but she's being protected by her media. Um, supporters but i was i was just i just wondered about the conservatives um and their ability the two women that the, the two women they've done it i mean thatcher as i recall was married to a millionaire um and she she did have a nanny didn't she um for her children i mean maybe i'm wrong on that so that i'm not sure how many i mean some labor women do come from quite well off families like um like harriet harman um and i think there are, there has been a slight disproportionate number of Labour women who become MPs have come from relatively privileged backgrounds, but most most Labour women who become MPs they've had to, you know, they've they've, they've like you were saying they've had a lot of sacrifices to make um, and a lot of prejudices. Certainly, if we're talking about that earlier generation, um, I mean, I um, when I when I did my book on the fifties and sixties, I mean, it was women MPs themselves who were telling other women who wanted to, you know, if you want to be an MP, you've got to have a hide like a rhinoceros. You've got to be like a man. You've got to be, you know, as as aggressive, you know, you've got to be the man um, in that. So the sense that, you know, and now, now I think there are different ways that certainly Labour women MPs can be women. They don't, they don't all have to adhere to a certain kind of rhinoceros model. Um, I mean, Stella Creasy obviously made a, a point about bringing her baby into the Commons Chamber, and I think she makes a very big point about being um, a woman with with young children and being an MP in a very very conscious way. So I think that's all to the good. And I don't see Conservative women MPs doing anything like that. And I think that's interesting as well because I think in, you know the, the Parliamentary Labour Party even before twenty nineteen there were a fair share of of. of maybe not fair actually that's the wrong word but there was a a large share of of women still and I think it sort of changes organizational culture like organizational psychology that you just have 
you know, you talk about things. Like before we started interviewing, um, when I was doing that project with Rachel Reeves, you know, all all the small talk is about like children and and stuff like that. And I think that really changes. Whereas the Conservative women MPs are still a tiny minority and they have different rules to play with. Um, You know, one of the things, there's there's um, an American political scientist called Karen Beckwith, who um, has come up with the concept of double militancy, that women in left-wing organisations suffer from this double militancy, that they're seen as being both like feminist and working for the women's cause, and then they're seen as working for the main cause, and that makes them sort of untrustworthy or like fifth columnists or whatever. Conservative women don't have that. They don't, you know, like they can be like Theresa May, a feminist with a lowercase f, uh they don't you know it's not like barricades it's not burning any brass it's not you know causing any massive revolutions anywhere so i think in that way they can be seen as more trustworthy at the same time the the stereotypical like gender roles that they have to live with i think are probably still more constrained and partly because they aren't that great in number Um, So this thing that we have at the moment where there are a myriad ways of being a Labour woman, I don't think that is the same case. I think for the Conservatives, the the women who make it to the top, they have, you know, husbands who make a great amount of money or are happy to stay out of the limelight, like uh, Dennis Thatcher. Uh, I think Margaret Thatcher's kids had a nanny and they went to boarding school, but I think by the time she became Prime Minister... They were at university, both of them, I think. But I can, you know, something like that. They they are of that age. Um, so you know, there's this the image of Margaret Thatcher standing in Ten Downing Street, cooking a meal for two, <laughs> and ironing Dennis's shirts for the next day. That's like, you know, she she performs these feminine wifely duties, but she can do that in a capacity of this marriage with this one person, and then the kids are, you know borders or taken care of by someone else but it's also like that, that is a thing that is expected of conservative women um diane abbott told us that when she because so she was elected in 87 and i think her son is born in 1992 so she was already an mp for about five years and she had to bring him into the office on occasion she had a family member from jamaica who was looking after the baby during the weekdays. Um, she's a London MP, so she obviously can commute from her, her own home and she doesn't have the split home thing. That is another problem for for uh, primary carers who are also members of parliament. But she um, she said that Nicholas Soane, <laughs> I looked at her in the lift once and said, oh, where is Nanny? Because, <laughs> you know, like, why don't you just like leave the baby with someone else? You pay someone to do it. And she's like, I'm, I'm an MP with not that great salary in those days um you know an expensive office to run and all of, all of that so you know there, there are conventions and traditions that even though both parties are now I mean they're nowhere near as homogenous as as that kind of crude characterization of rich Tories and middle class Labour Party members really is and I think there is you know the st- traditions and the family structures um, might seem different um, and that might help some conservative women and it might really constrain some of the Labour women at least historically. So what do we think then 
that means in terms of a translation for how we understand feminism um, within the Labour Party and how that differs from how conservative women would understand feminism. Right? Because you talked about what I've written about once as this sort of secondary contradiction for women, um, labor women, right? You that they're socialists, but they're also feminists, but that their feminism is sort of traditionally meant to to take second seat. And that was something that um, a lot of early labor women really struggled with, but I think continues to be a tension um, in terms of women, labor women who consider themselves feminists and how those two loyalties play out. But it's not only labor women who consider themselves feminists, right? Margaret Thatcher famously says, I'm not a feminist. She's very critical of, you know, these women's liberation um, movement, women in dungarees, as she sees them, who are very unfeminine. But Theresa May owned to what she believed was a sincere feminism, right? She was the founder, one of the co-founders of Women to Win. She was very concerned about increasing female representation in parliament and within her own party. Um, and while Liz Truss hasn't spoken particularly about her feminism or lack thereof, right, as a junior minister, she starts out in the Ministry of Education um, with a brief for childcare, um, and so is presumably not uninterested or uninformed about the practicalities of balancing um, a career and childcare. But, but there isn't this same association of Tory women and feminism, right? And is that is that just mistaken, or does feminism mean something different for conservative women than labor women? Does it necessarily mean something different, or does it just happen to mean something different? Um, I mean, I, I'm sort of trying to be fair to the other side, right? But are is it only labor women who are feminist, or is feminism different if it's conservative feminism, Steve? So i i would I would say that that. That this question is kind of like a subset of a, of a broader question about different ideas of freedom. Um, and conservatives have got a notion of freedom where, whereby it's a, a question of getting rid of things um, uh, that, that get in your way um, to allow the individual to go, you know, as, as their talents take them, as far as their talents take them. Whereas with Labour, it's, it's, it's freedom that, that you need certain forms of help to, to, to realise your potential. Um, so you need government to intervene either in the, the, the law or in terms of the state more particularly. So welfare, you know, welfare is very, very important um, and has always been an important um, part of uh, Labour women's politics. Um, the men had the wages. I mean, that was a classic divide. Men had wages. Women had welfare. Um, so the welfare state was very important um, in terms of labour women and achieving some degree of equality, at least levelling the playing field a little bit. And so, I'd, I mean, I would, I'd, you know, I'm, I wouldn't want to deny that, that conservative women think some of them think themselves as feminists, but their their view is 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 classically individualistic. Um, whereas with labour, it's well, people and specifically women, but other groups too need government need an intervention um, in in different ways. And maybe it's no it's no surprise that um, in fact I think this is what part of the explanation why why Labour's um, got a big lead amongst certainly younger women um, relatively recently it's because of austerity the impact of austerity on their lives I mean it's a practical expression that that younger women in particular need help and that help is being denied and Labour you know doesn't get elected but it kind of is at least saying you know these things need to be restored. 
Yeah, and I think um, I, I really agree. I, I uh, think of uh, conservative feminism as a sort of choice feminism, that you have the right to choose. You can choose to, you know, have a fantastic career and you can choose to combine that with children if you want to, but, you know, there are certain sacrifices, but you can do it. It's like, you know, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, I suppose, the feminist bootstraps, whereas um, the Labour feminist, and feminism is such a broad church anyway, right? And within the Labour Party, it also goes, like, from however you want to distinguish it, like left to right or radical or, you know, like trans-inclusive or, you know, so many varying, like, individual opinions about and definitions of what feminism is. Um, Liz Trust is quite a free marketeer, isn't she? So I suppose her feminism, if we're going to make assumptions, her, her, I would assume that her feminism would be more of a kind of a free market feminism, that you can do it uh, and you just have to get into the game and do it um, and kind of follow the rules in a way that maybe people on the Labour side would be like, well, we need to reach, we need to change the rules because this isn't fair. Um, I think, I mean, there is Theresa May. She definitely calls herself a feminist. And you, you're completely right with the Women to Win project, which is massively hurt. David Cameron gets a bit of credit for it because he put it in, you know, he adopted it when he became the party leader. But, you know, Amber Rudd came through Women to Win. She calls herself a feminist. Um but she, you know, like there is, there, there are clearly issues with some of that feminism. And I think this is maybe another thing to think about, maybe not in this particular episode of the podcast, but at a later stage. Like, is it easier to be elected as a woman from the Conservative Party than a man with, you know, some, some sort of immigrant history, even though it's not his own? It might be his parents or grandparents. Because uh, that is also like, is it, is it easier? now to be a woman than to be a, an ethnic minority in the party and is that the same for Labour or is that a different thing for Labour I mean racism is a real thing misogyny is a real thing and they sort of you know they they move up and down these different levels and I think there's there's a scary part of modern politics in which parties or party members who are able to vote for party leadership make assumptions about the electorate and who can be who can be a leader based on assumptions about the electorate and who will, you know, look good in front of the electorate. And I think, um, yeah, eth- ethnic minority women are the most abused on social media or se- are sent the most abused on social media in, in British politics. And, um, you know, Rishi Sunak is a man, but he will also be subjected to a lot of racism and will have been throughout his life. So, you know, there, there are various um, interesting issues here that affect individuals in different ways. And I mean, this is not the direction that this podcast is going in, but, um, you know, conservatives did make the point that their leadership contest was not just diverse in terms of the number of women standing, but also in the terms of the number of ethnic minorities who were vying for the top post. Um, and you're right that there's an intersectionality there, um, which, I mean, Suella Braverman had had other issues handicapping her campaign from the start. But, um, you know, being an ethnic minority woman, um, you know, didn't, didn't help those. Um, and I guess it does lead back to that question of representation, right? And whether whether the Labour Party, the issue of not having a woman at the top might have to do 
with perceptions of how, and as Emma said, you know, it's not really about what your voters think, but what you think they think, right? And does the Labour Party think that their voters want a man leading the party? I, I mean, we're, we're talking about a very small number of, of occasions where the Labour Party has had the opportunity to vote for a, a woman leader. Um, I mean, if, if we just take it for like from, you know, Thatcher became leader of the Conservative Party through accident and and dare, really. I mean, it was it's freakish how she became leader of the Conservative Party, right? So she was she was a big she was an accident, really, an aberration. So we can almost dismiss her. Um, she she's the great exception um, that proves no rule. Um, but Labour's had very small a very small number of opportunities to elect um, a leader, really, and. And so, I mean, I, I, I just don't think that, I mean, maybe there are some people that think like that. Um, I just don't, I just don't meet them. Um, and certainly when, when I was considering the merits, I, it was the fact that a woman uh, or a man was irrelevant. What's interesting, though, is, is how the issue can be used. I mean, this is something we need to be aware of, can be used in completely disingenuous ways. So I remember in the last election, in the last leadership election, Ian Lavery, you know, one of Jeremy Corbyn's loudest, if nothing else, um, supporters, said um, in a speech how terrible it was that Keir Starmer looked like he was going to be elected leader. And this was re- he should stand down in favour of Rebecca Long Bailey, who, of course, was the continuity Corbyn candidate because she was a woman. And of course, that was completely disingenuous. So, so there are people that are going to use this in different ways. But, but broadly, broadly, I mean, I'd be surprised if it was a significant sort of element in in certainly Labour Party terms that ah, oh, she's a woman, therefore that's a problem. Because if nothing else, Margaret Thatcher, I think, demolished that as a as a thing. I mean, exceptional and an aberration she was. But I think that did ha- that actually did make it easier. Um, for people to think about a leader in those as, as, as someone to become a leader of prime minister, I, I just, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you've got if you've got sort of evidence that it, it is, but I, I just don't think so. It's just, it just hasn't happened yet for all kinds of reasons, which I don't think sexism is the most important one. I don't think, um, but I could. No, be- I, I- I think you're completely right as well. I just some 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 of the kind of off the record conversations I've had with um, well, among them like political journalists who um, might be aware of you know how various newspaper proprietors are keen to portray certain women in particular. Maybe you know like that it makes. I think the problem is more how easy they are to attack and that you want to build up some sort of defence ahead of reaching that point but I think you're very right and I think this is this is like I mean maybe we've just spent 42 minutes talking about something that could have been solved through an accident as well like Margaret Thatcher because I think I mean that is also really interesting would they have elected her as party leader if they hadn't thought that she was just going to be some sort of she was going to be there for like a year or two she wasn't going to get up to much I don't think they would have elected her. I think uh, Michael Hesseltine has said as much that they would never have elected her if they'd known that she was going to stay for 12 years or however long she remained in her post. Um, you know, like it's, you know, you never really quite know what you're getting when you when you vote for a party leader. Um, but the fact that women of the Labour Party who have stood for leader have often had like their private lives 
run through in the press, uh, all of these mistakes they make that become a big thing, how they neglect their children, how they send their children to private school and all of that. And I think, you know, it's off-putting at least to maybe not to the electorate, but it's off-putting for people to put themselves in that kind of vulnerable position. So if it's, if it was just by chance in some senses that we got Thatcher, if it's not about misogyny within the Labour Party, but about kind of agendas within the press or other things that maybe have made it hard for women or few opportunities to rise to the top of the Labour Party. I guess that loops back to that one of the first questions um, that emerged from our kind of opening comments, which is how important is it really? Um, I mean, Steve flagged up the fact that since Thatcher was prime minister, the gender gap um, has narrowed and ultimately swung the opposite direction, where now women are more likely to support labor than the conservatives vis-a-vis their male counterparts in the electorate. Um, you know, this is at the same time that you have, have seen Theresa May as prime minister and now trust likely to become the next prime minister. So is it really not about who's leading the parties, but about the policies they're pursuing? And what are the policies that the Labour Party over the last couple of decades um, has has pursued that have made it increasingly comparatively attractive to women in the electorate? And can can that be the ship that they sail forward into, you know, an election victory based on a, a female majority? I would, I mean, my, I think my main thing about what policy they pursued and what policy they probably should be pursuing is childcare. Um, because I think Labour has an electorate, or could at least appeal to an electorate that would like to work. <laughs> and you know, the, I, I don't live in the UK anymore, but I had kids on nurseries in London before I moved to Sweden. And you know, we in Sweden we pay like less than in a year than I would in a month in London. And we didn't have full time childcare there, and we have two kids in full time childcare here. I'm living in the United States, Emma. I know I'm incredibly spoiled these days (laughs) but I think it's like you know like like sort the childcare out and it's such a massive debate right now I think it really helped uh, entice women in 1997 I think it's a good policy to have for them Um, it targets so many of their like key demographics and their key ideological positions uh, and then sometimes I think they should think about how they talk about it and how they talk about, um, you know, like that they're going to be hard on benefits and all of that. I think they, you know, it's, they're trying to target people who read the Times, I suppose, with with that sort of strategy. But you know, push childcare, and I think you'll you'll you know you stand a greater chance of winning than if you know the, the Conservatives don't seem to have an answer at the moment. Nothing I've seen from the bits I've seen of the Tory leadership. Um, the um, the debates haven't showed me anything that they have any answers to the childcare problem, and they might not even think that childcare is a problem because of like the reasons we were talking about before. I I once did. Um, uh, it's quite embarrassed. No, I'm not embarrassed, but I should be embarrassed. Uh, in 2010, for the election, I was given some money by um, by Lambrini, uh, the the drinks company uh, that was trying to rebrand itself because it was very concerned. Uh, that Lambrini kept popping up in the press, popular press, you know, teenagers getting drunk on Lambrini. So they were trying to sort of redirect attention um, and and improve its brand image because the women that actually 
drink Lambrini. I don't know if either of you have ever drunk Lambrini. It's a lovely drink. I'm still not, I'm not being sponsored by them anymore. Um, but the women that did were working class women in their twenty with children in their twenties, thirties, and into their forties or later. Sort of not 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 young, but not old. Um, and they did a survey of women who of, of who were working of that very demographic. And what did they want from politicians? Um, they wanted um, clean hospitals. Um, they wanted free dental care. Um, they wanted something done about education, right? About their kids, right? There were the none of the none of those things politicians were talking about, and none of them are they, you know, you know, free free dental care. Where's that gone, right? So I would actually, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd agree um, um, with Emma that I would have said childcare, right? Um, but the thing is, and I, I don't want to go against. I mean, th- this is this is the hard the hard faced sort of politics of things. Um, one of you said that um, when when quotas was first talked about in '92, it was an electoral electoralist argument. I mean, clearly it was feminists, but the feminists were using an electoralist argument, i.e., if only women had voted to the same extent as men in '92, we would have won it. Labour doesn't need to do that anymore. Labour's lead with women, certainly younger women, is is bigger than it's ever been. Its problem is with young men and with older women, right? Because the gap between men and women diminishes with age so that there's no difference between the over 60s between men and women. So if, if Labour's got, a, ironically, if Labour's got a problem um, with, uh, with women, it's with older women. I mean, I'm not saying it shouldn't do those things, that, you know, but it's not going to really get so much of an electoral benefit. Or if it does, maybe it won't be you know, diminishing returns. So it needs to address young men, whatever they're doing, um, but older women. And maybe that's where the waspy women thing comes in. I mean, I was briefly, I did some brief um, canvassing in 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 the last but in the last by election, Wakefield. And one, I mean, it was bizarre. Um, there was this very well off older family, and the man down there was a man and a woman um, couple, and the man said, "I've voted Conservative all of my life, but I'm not going to vote for them until they do something about waspy women because my wife." is a waspy woman and they'd all been and they were going to vote Labour because of that issue so maybe totally electoralist do something about that which I know it's it's somewhere there or thereabouts whether they resolve from it I don't know but that's what I would say if you're thinking purely as an electoralist thing Labour is an electoralist electoralist organisation I think though I just want to make a point about maybe childcare being an issue for young men as well um <laughs> because young men also have families and a lot of these young men also struggle to pay um their childcare bills and would maybe be better off as families if if both parents could work full time um but i think you're very right and i think it'd be quite interesting to uh, brainstorm what drink should pay for the next bit of research to target young men <laughs> i feel really out of date on that one but <laughs> go to go to any student pub and i think you'll find quite a few <laughs> And maybe, I mean, maybe that's the argument for time, right? I mean, Labour has always presented itself as the coming party and the future. And maybe as the the demographics continue to shift, um, you know, it's been the coming party for over a century now. But maybe um, as our pensioners age out of the electorate, this will finally be the Labour's moment here. So on that optimistic note for labor, um, (laughs) thank you so much, Emma, for coming on um, today. And Steve and I will be back in your feeds in a couple of months um, after the recess. 
and enjoy your summers. <laughs>